Hi everyone and welcome back to Haunted History Chronicles. Before we introduce today's podcast or guest, if you like this podcast please consider leaving a review. It costs nothing but it helps share news of the podcast and guests I feature with others interested within the paranormal. It's a simple and easy way to help the podcast continue to grow and be a space for people to chat and come together. If you haven't already found us on the Haunted History Chronicles website, Instagram, Facebook or Twitter, you can find links to all social media pages in any of the notes for an episode. Come and join us to get involved and gain access to additional blogs, news and updates. And now, let's get started introducing today's episode. Joining me today is Simon Entwistle, an award-winning tour guide and author of Ghostly Tales of the Unexpected. He has a knack for storytelling, whether it's as part of one of the tours he conducts across three northern counties, or via an event where he regales his audience with history, ghosts, heroes, villains, murders, mystery, and more. It's a real privilege to be joined by Simon, as he shares some chilling, haunting, ghostly history as well as personal accounts and local stories of tragedy and bravery. Hi Simon, thank you so much for joining me tonight. My pleasure, Michelle. Do you want to just start by telling us a little bit about you? Yes, um, basically I am a tour guide. I uh, cover tours of Lancashire, Yorkshire and Cumbria. A lot of my tours take place in coaches. Uh, we go on foot sometimes. But over the years, I have amassed a huge amount of ghost stories. And I do find that ghost stories seem to be exceptionally popular with people of all ages. I've kind of said to you before that, you know, I really am in awe of what you do because I personally think that local history, local stories are so important to not be lost so that they can be passed on because they can easily be forgotten and overlooked. You know, what we have on our doorstep can be forgotten. And the fact that you share that so much with people is amazing. It's a very enjoyable job, I have, I must say. So where did your interest in history and the paranormal kind of start? Is there a particular moment that got you hooked? Uh, very much, Michelle, um, and I suppose in many ways um, it could be my first story, really. Um, I became quite fascinated with ghostly tales uh, through my dad, and my dad wouldn't lie about anything. He was uh, a very, very honest man. The story he told me when I was 15 years old is something that has never, ever left me. We're going to turn the clock back now to 1960, when I was just five years old. Uh, my father bought this very, very beautiful house in a little hamlet outside the market town of Kendal in South Cumbria. I remember arriving there on this very, very crisp December day in the Pickford's vehicle and seeing this gorgeous three-storey Victorian house with its own grounds. Behind it, you can make out the Lake District Mountains and uh, also these gorgeous forests that surround the whole of the Lake District. Um, I remember going into that house the first time, and I fell in love with it. Uh, my mum and dad quickly made up the beds for myself, my sister, who was two years old, and my brother, who was eight. And the three of us fell into a deep sleep. None of us had any idea, but my parents were going to experience something very, very paranormal. They carried on working until the early hours of the morning, emptying tea chests full of crockery and cutlery. And around one o'clock in the morning, they decided to turn in. They made up their bed and they climbed into bed. My dad remembered that because it was a country house, the last job they needed to do was to put up any curtains. There were no neighbours. And uh, they climbed into bed. My dad turned over and bright, bright moonlight was shining into the bedroom. He then heard the sounds of tiny footsteps that got louder and louder. He thought it was either me or my sister who had left our bed and got frightened in the night. The door of his bedroom slowly opened and in came a liver and white cocker spaniel. He thought, where's that come from? 
How's that dog got in here? He got out of bed. He walked towards the dog to grab the dog's collar, but his hand went straight through it. He made a second attempt and his hand went straight through the dog's collar for the second time. The dog then turned and looked at the window as if its name was being called. The dog then shimmered and totally disappeared. My father sat on the end of the bed in a state of shock. He had seen something very, very paranormal. My mother woke up with a jolt and said, I've had a strange dream. There's a man outside the house in Victorian clothing, looking up at our bedroom window. My father then told her exactly what had happened to him, and they put two and two together. Now, they never told me, my brother, sister and I, until we were in our early teens. But in that period of time, I grew to love the house and still do with all my heart. Some very, very happy birthdays, some very, very happy Christmases. And when my dad sold the house in 1973, it broke my heart to leave all those happy family memories behind. But this is where the story gets really, really spooky. Only six years ago, my wife and I went on a Mediterranean cruise. I'd never been on a cruise before, but I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. The vessel was called the Oceana, a member of the P&O group. It was a Mediterranean cruise and they had what's called black tie events that took place uh, in the restaurants at night time. I went down to the restaurant with my wife, sat at the table, and just two tables away, there was a young lady that kept smiling at me. And I thought, I really cannot be that good looking. As it happened, she knew me. She came across and introduced herself and said, it's Simon, isn't it? I said, that, that's quite correct. She said, I, I've, I live quite near where you do in, the, in Lancashire, and I've been in your tours. Uh, my name's Louise, and I am the events manager on this vessel called the Oceana. I book all the acts. And she said, Simon, have you ever thought about doing any storytelling on a vessel like this? And I said, well, Louise, would people like ghosts? Would they like murders? Would they like mysteries? Oh, you'd be surprised, she said. She gave me an email address to contact P&O when I got back to England. And I thought, well, why not? So I contacted P&O. And much to my surprise, within three days, I'd been offered an audition. I could go down to Sussex or to Cumbria to be auditioned. Now, of course, Lancashire is next door to Cumbria, and it was a no-brainer, if you will. I telephoned a lady called Maureen. She was the, um, the cruise manager. She did, in fact, um, literally audition all the lecturers and everyone associated with the entertainment on P&O cruises. She said, Simon... I live in South Cumbria. My house is rather hard to find. I said, oh, don't worry. I know the area quite well. She said, you won't find my house, Simon. I'm going to give you a sat-nav code. She gave me the sat-nav code. And um, I remember it was a Tuesday afternoon, some three years ago. And um, I set off from Clitheroe and found myself driving over what's called the beautiful Trough of Boland, down to the city of Lancaster, and then turning right for South Cumbria and the Lake District. It was a beautiful journey. I went past my old primary school. I went past my old secondary modern school. I went down a very, very familiar road that took me over a place called Hebisham Head, which was a, a beautiful limestone outcrop with a forest on top of it. I then came down the back of Hebisham Head, took a left turn, and found myself driving up the very drive of the very house that my father sold in 1973. It seems that Maureen, the cruise director, had actually bought the house. When I got there, I was quite shocked. I was jaded. I looked up at the familiar three-story Victorian building. The door opened, and there was Maureen. I said, come on, Simon, we haven't got much time. I need to get this audition done. You look a bit jaded, she said. Well, actually, I know you won't believe this, Maureen, but I used to live here. No, 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 she said. I, don't, I can't buy that one, Simon. I did, honestly. On my laptop. I had some photographs of my childhood, which confirmed my story. She said, right, Simon, come in. Let's have a cup of tea. She made her way to the kitchen. She put the kettle on and she came back with a, a tray of tea, a pot of tea, milk, sugar, etc. She sat down next to me and poured the tea. I then told her about my father's experience with the ghostly dog, the liver and white cocker spaniel. Her eyes lit up. The teapot fell from her fingers and smashed on the floor. I said, oh, Simon, my brother lives in London. 
every Christmas, he spends Christmas with us. The very first Christmas, he would have had what would have been your mother and father's bedroom upstairs. He mentioned in the early hours of the morning, the door opened and in came a liver and white Cocker Spaniel. I looked at the ceiling and said, thanks, Dad. My father passed away way back in 1982, but it just confirmed his story and confirmed the fact that ghosts do exist. And that's my first story, Michelle. I absolutely love that. I mean, I think there's something very powerful in sharing these stories because, you know, I think the more we the more we do, the more we realise actually many of us have these kinds of stories in our history, in our families, and, you know, they should be shared and likewise within communities. But in this case, to have this kind of come full circle for it to end in that way where you are able to return and kind of have that confirmation is really quite chilling, you know, kind of puts the hairs on the back of your neck up, doesn't it, really? Um, it was an amazing story, Michelle. It's one of my favourites. And um, as I say, um, when my dad told me the story, it fascinated me and still does to this very, very day. And I still have a lot of deep affection for that house. But it was such a shocking experience to go back in such a different context, if you will. Mm, absolutely. And um, to almost feel, I suppose, like it was fate in some way that you were meant to be on that ship at that time to make this connection, to then have this email and to visit this house and for it to all come together the way that it did. It must have must have really felt like something else was kind of pulling threads somewhere for that to happen. Very much so. I mean, I call it the 44 million to one against. Yeah, I can believe that one. And, you know, for me, ghost stories and paranormal, you know, encounters and activity, you know, these things that really do fascinate so many of us for different reasons. For me, I also think it's a really interesting way to explore history, families, names, people, places, events, because it can be a real interesting route into period of the past. And I was kind of wondering if you have any particular favourite ghost stories or ghost accounts, ghost lore, around where you are that you wanted to share with people listening? Sure, Michelle. Um, again, this is um, a completely true story. Um, it's, um, strange enough, a, another December story in many, many ways. Firstly, I live in the market town of Clitheroe in Lancashire. Um, it's a very, very tight-knit community. Everyone knows each other. And uh, some years ago, I met uh, a gentleman called Andrew, who had this permanent smile on his face. And I said, you seem a very happy guy, Andrew. Um, what's the secret? He said, Simon, I died three times. Oh, yeah. Tell me about it. He mentioned um, way back in 2007, he had been drinking in a little village called Gisborne with his friend. Now, we all know the dangers of drink driving, but both he and his friend David had consumed over the limit. They drove back to Clivero quite inebriated, which of course is totally illegal and not to be followed, I can assure you. They took a corner too tightly and hit a tree. The engine came out from the, the front of the, um, of the bonnet and pinned Andrew to the seat, breaking his ankles, his legs, his pelvis and his rib cage. Now David was next to him and the engine missed him, so therefore he wasn't badly injured but the vehicle was badly crushed. The fire brigade arrived on the scene and so did the police and ambulance crews. The fire brigade cut the roof off the car and um, David was okay, just scratched. And they lifted Andrew's body out and placed the body by the side of the vehicle on the grass verge where one of the police officers said, well, he's definitely had it. This, this boy's definitely had it. When the ambulance arrived, one of the paramedics uh, knelt over him and was about to confirm that he was actually dead when he saw a, a slight twitter in the eye, if you will, a slight movement in the eyelid. An air ambulance was called and he was rushed off to hospital. On the journey from the little village of Gisborne to Manchester, he had a cardiac arrest. The paramedics on board the helicopter got his heart going again and they decided to divert from the town of Blackburn and go straight to what's called Crumpsall Hospital in North Manchester. As the helicopter touched down, he had another cardiac arrest and the crew had to use a defibrillator to get him, uh, to get his heart pumping again. He was then rushed into theatre 
And this is where our story really does take off. Andrew remembered all of a sudden leaving his body. He was actually gazing down from the top of the theatre at his open chest. He could see surgeons and staff working feverishly on his chest cavity. He saw clamps being used and he felt completely at ease. He felt very, very comfortable and completely at ease. He then heard this rather beautiful music and he turned to his right and saw a very, very bright white light. And the music seemed to get louder and louder. And part of him wanted to actually go into the light and leave the theatre. But as he looked down again, he noticed one of the doctors um, make his way to the, the sinks in the side of the theatre wall there. And a nurse took his mask off and took his um, head headdress off. And um, Andrew remembered him being a young man with a pencil-thin moustache and uh, slightly dark hair. The nurse mocked his brow, and he actually heard a conversation between the nurse and the surgeon. Don't worry, we'll be in Ibiza this time tomorrow. And then Andrew just suddenly came back into his body. For three months, he was in a coma. Remember, broken ankles, broken legs, broken pelvis, broken chest, uh, cavity, and his iota was very badly damaged. After three long months, his eyes opened. His mother was sitting by the bed and she was so delighted to hear him talk and realised that he had actually come back. Of course, word went round the hospital and the head surgeon came rushing upstairs. Oh, Andrew, I'm so glad you made it. So glad you made it. We, we worked feverishly on you that day, you know. Oh, yes, I know, said Andrew. I watched the whole thing. No, no, no. Impossible, said the surgeon. Oh, I did. By the way, how was Ibiza? The surgeon looked at him. Andrew, how do you know that? Oh, I heard you talking to that nurse. Well, that nurse was my, my wife, and yes, we did go to Ibiza. So whenever I see Andrew, there's always a smile on his face, because he really did die three times and came back from the very, very brink of going to the next world. Quite a beautiful story, Michelle. Gosh, absolutely. And, you know, again, just... One of the things that I really love is that you share these kinds of encounters and, and accounts with people and you really are a master at sharing history and sharing ghost lore and it's just such a pleasure to hear you kind of speak about them with the kind of the passion and the enthusiasm and the interest that you that you have really and you know you offer so many opportunities for people to come and take part in what you're doing via tours via events and so on and i know one string to your bow is precisely putting together things like this where you can share stories share ghost stories share ghostly accounts from across the the united kingdom with people so that they can come along and listen and and kind of enjoy what you do and enjoy enjoy these tales so that again like I mentioned from at the start that they don't get lost and I know you you recently held some over the Halloween period and uh, there was one story that I've not heard of before and I wondered if you'd be able to share it with us which was about the Mackenzie poltergeist and it's it's a new one on me I've, I've never heard that one come up before in, in any of my research Yes, well, um, that story, Michelle, uh, will take us to the city of Edinburgh. Um, of course, up in Scotland, just like Northern Ireland, there's always been a lot of, dare I say it, hatred between the Protestants and the Catholics. And even nowadays, you can go to places like Derry, London, Derry, and indeed Glasgow. And there's some areas where um, there's a bit of hatred, which I think is a terrible shame because they all share the same Bible, as far as I'm concerned. But uh, Mackenzie was an ardent Protestant, and he was the Lord Advocate, which was a very, very high-ranking uh, position in Scotland in the 1760s. Um, and um, there was indeed a uprising, which was quelled uh, by the Protestant authorities, and all those people who had been involved in the uprising were taken to the city of Edinburgh. There, a terrible, terrible fate awaited them, who were placed inside um, a prison, which had no roof, they weren't fed, they weren't watered, and these poor people literally starved to death. It was a cruel and barbaric death. Now, half the city, of course, 
uh, really did worship Mackenzie. The other half hated him because of what he'd actually done. But he became a bit of a martyr, particularly with the Protestants. And he's buried at a place called the, uh, the Greyfriars uh, Cemetery, which is not too far from Greyfriars Bobby, actually. Uh, but they made a mausoleum for him, this beautiful, round-shaped mausoleum. And um, it's now permanently locked, of course. But if it wasn't locked, you can open the gates. Uh, you can then lift this rather large trapdoor, go down a flight of stairs, and there you'll find his coffin on a trestle. Now, way back in 1987, um, two young lads made their way into the churchyard. They'd been drinking some very, very strong Scottish lager, and both lads were quite severely inebriated. And one got a brick, and they thought, let's have a look at this mausoleum. And they broke open the lock, and they pulled back the trapdoor by kicking the leaves away from the top of it, and they went down the steps, and there they could see Mackenzie's coffin. They prized the lid off. They then rather sadly removed his skull, and they went up the steps, and they had a game of catch in the graveyard. Now, a tour guide made her way in with a group of uh, tourists. Uh, that, that cemetery is so uh, famous in um, Edinburgh. It's a regular tourist attraction. And she saw them playing with a skull. She said, hey, boys, um, can I just have a word, please? Uh, just wait there. I'm, I'm going to take this group out of the cemetery. I'll come back and have a chat because I find this sort of thing very, very interesting. Of course, she was horrified. She immediately called the police. And these two boys were arrested. The skull was taken back down to the coffin, placed back inside the coffin. And, of course, they put a large padlock on the mausoleum. However, these two boys became very, very seriously ill. They were rushed to two different Edinburgh hospitals, where the staff at both hospitals were convinced that they'd been poisoned by something. Uh, they asked parents what they'd been eating. Had they eaten anything extraordinary? They took blood tests and found the blood tests were clear. Uh, they took swabs in their mouths and found there was no poison there. But both boys were in comas, and both boys experienced horrific, horrific nightmares of sheer terror. Luckily, they both came round, but both of them were convinced that the Mackenzie poltergeist had indeed been after them. It's almost like a warning, never ever to go down to that coffin because if you do, you might just raise his spirits. Definitely a chilling encounter. Um, as I said, it's not one that I've heard before. So, you know, thank you for sharing it. I mean, it's incredible just the wealth of different stories that we have across Scotland, Wales, the United Kingdom, yes. and of course, around the world that we really don't necessarily know because there's just such a plethora of different accounts and one other string to your bow of course is that you have written a book before do you want to tell us a little bit about how that came about you know how you got about to writing that book and and putting those stories together it was called ghostly tales of the unexplained and um i covered um again those three northern counties really and uh, also personal um experiences and indeed, um, personal eye account experiences, really. Uh, but I'm now working on an audio book, because with audio books, you don't need to worry about spelling mistakes. You don't need to worry about punctuation. And uh, I find an audio story is by far more exciting than actually reading a book reading the show. There's something also I, as well, I think, about the types of stories that you're sharing that really sets hearing them out loud um, just adds that extra kind of element to them. You know, um, hearing them spoken verbally is very reminiscent of how ghost stories used to be yes. spoken and told aloud. And, you know, I think there really is something magical about trying to preserve that in some way. Yes, I, um, I agree completely, Michelle. There's um, nothing better than a verbal story than, uh, than, than reading one, really. Before we head back to the podcast, if you haven't already visited the Haunted History Chronicles Patreon page, now is the perfect time to join to listen and enjoy a multitude of additional podcasts, merchandise, mail and other written materials. It's a great way to support the podcast continue to grow and put out additional content, share guests and their stories, as well as helping the podcast to continue to be enjoyed 
You should be able to see goals the podcast is working towards to help see how your support contributes to this. And with different tiers, you can help for as little as you like and as long as you like. You can find the link in the episode description notes, as well as on the Haunted History Chronicles website. Thank you so much for your support. And now let's head back to the podcast. It's something that I think, you know, as I said, people coming along to your tours, people coming along to your events can really kind of immerse themselves in that in that precise type of feel that you're that you get when you're hearing something spoken out loud. You can really you can start to imagine it, I think. You can start to put yourself in that position, feel what it would have been like. And likewise, you know, for for the tours that you take people on, they're not only hearing it spoken but they're able to see it firsthand. They're able to see those spots, hear those stories and accounts as they're you know, visually, physically seeing it and encountering places, landmarks that were very much part of that story themselves. Very much so, very much so, Michelle. And one of, the, one of those particular locations that you obviously share with many people on part of your tours, the, you know, the Pendle Witch Trials. Yes. And it's it's something that really does resonate and should resonate with people why you know why do you think that's such a powerful story of what happened that you know shouldn't be lost for people that's a great question michelle really um certainly in this part of the world it's probably the most famous story to come from this part of the world it is a sort of story that if steven spielberg really got his teeth into it he would have a Hollywood thriller. Let's turn the clock back to the year 1603. At that period of time, we have this marvelous queen on the throne of England called Queen Elizabeth I. She led by example, loved by the people of England. And when she passed away in 1603, people felt, who's going to replace her? Well, none other than King James VI of Scotland, who then became King James I of England. This man was absolutely paranoid about witchcraft. He not only believed that witches existed, he believed they were actually out to get him. He blamed witchcraft on the fact his wife, Anne of Denmark, couldn't get from Denmark to marry him. He blamed witchcraft and Catholicism as being very, very similar and believed the gunpowder plot was also um, not only a Catholic plot, but used with witchcraft as well. He wrote a book called The Demonology Book. You can read that book today from any leading bookshop. And as you pick it up, how to find a witch, how to try a witch, and most importantly, how to eradicate a witch. Throughout the whole length of Great Britain, one area that really seemed to stick out was known simply as the Forest of Pendle in East Lancashire. A very isolated place, away from civilization, but living deep, deep in the Forest of Pendle were a group of people that would go down in history as the Pendle Witches. Two of them, were quite unique, really, two very, very elderly women of the name of Elizabeth Southern and Anne Whittle. Both women were over 85 years old. Now, life expectancy way back in 1612, apparently, was 35. There's no doctors, there's no dentists, there's no supermarkets. You lived off the land. It was a tough, tough life. These two women actually hated each other with a vengeance. Um, both women were very, very capable of setting bones, uh, making herbal remedies. And you've all heard the expression, an old wives' remedy. Well, these women, they knew all about plants and they knew exactly how to use them. In the case of Elizabeth Southern, she lived in a little cottage called Malkin Tower, which sounds grand, doesn't it, really? But Malkin Tower would have been an old hovel, a one-roomed limestone hovel beneath the shadow of Pendle Hill. She had lost her husband, but had a daughter called Elizabeth Device, and she had three children, James, Alison, and Jeanette Device, and they all lived at Malkin Tower. In the case of Anne Whittle, she lived in the village of um, Roughly with her daughter Anne Redfern. These were the main Pendle witches. And our story starts way back on the 18th of March, 1612, when Alison Device, the granddaughter of Elizabeth Southern, had a walk along the length of Pendle Hill. There she had the misfortune of meeting a Halifax peddler called John Law. When I say peddler, John Law was basically a walking salesman. 
a large pack in his back full of 1612 luxuries. He would go from village to village selling his wares. He was also a bit like a walking newspaper as well, really. Um, he met young Alison, and Alison begged of him. Oh, please, sir, please, sir. You can spare just a couple of pins to pin me clothing together, sir. Get away with you. I'm not taking me pack off of you, lass. You've got no money. You're no use to me. Please, sir, just a couple of pins, sir. According to John Law, the Halifax peddler, out of the mist, out of the heather, appeared a huge black dog with snarling white teeth and glowing red eyes. And the dog sat next to Alison. And the dog talked. Alison. I can lame him for you. Lame him! Lame him! She screamed. John Law felt this terrible pain on his left arm, left leg, and collapsed in agony on the cone to Trawden Road beneath the shadow of Pendle Hill. He lay there for five long hours. The kind people of the town of Cone could see him. They got a stretcher team together, and they carried him into an old alehouse called the Greyhound, which is long, long since gone. The landlord, Jonathan Edrington, soon fed him cleaned him, and as Law's voice returned, Law shouted, I've been cursed! There's a witch in the forest, a young lass with a dog. I swear to you, I heard the dog talk. She's a league with devil. Send letters back to my family. A series of letters was sent from the Greyhound Inn to Halifax, to the Law household, and John Law's eldest son, Abraham, received the first letter. Eh, me father's in trouble, I better go and collect him. He set her from Halifax, arrived in Cone and walked into the old Greyhound Inn to see his father in a twisted and contorted state. Uh, father, uh, what's happened to you, man? You look terrible. Abram, I've been cursed. I met a young lass in the forest of Pendle. She's got a dog. I swear to you, I heard the dog talk. She's cursed me, lad. She's cursed me. I want you to go and find her. Bring her here. Get her to reverse the curse. She's a witch, lad. Go and find her. Abraham must have been a very, very brave lad. He set off from Cone and walked deep into the forest of Pendle. After a while, he came across this little cottage called Malkin Tower. He hammered on the door. The door opened, and there was James Device, Alison's brother. Uh, can I help you, sir? I want to see Alison Device. Where is she? In here, sir. Alison came to the door. Right, lass, you're coming with me. My father wants to see you. She protested her innocence who was dragged through the forest, down to the little market town of Cone, and into the old Greyhound Inn, where she made eye contact with John Law, the Halifax peddler. John Law looked up from his sickbed. It's you! It's you! You're the witch! You curse me, lass! That dog you had! I heard it talk! You're a lingering devil, aren't you? This 14-year-old girl, on bended knees, begged and begged and begged forgiveness. She had no idea. She just admitted to a state capital offence of witchcraft. And strangely enough, John Law, the Halifax peddler, was about to forgive her, but not his son Abraham. Oh no, we'll have you for this. I'm going to go and get magistrate. And in doing so, he opened what we now call the 1612 Pendle Witch Trials. The local magistrate was called Roger Noel. He lived in the village of Reed near Burnley, and was in charge of the whole area. He had his book of demonology, which he had read, and was fully aware of the king's paranoia, and he also knew if he could convict this girl for witchcraft, he was going to carry favour with none other than the King of England personally. So therefore, Alison was brought straight to Reed Hall, Burnley, to his home. For the second time aside 24 hours, she burst into tears and begged and begged forgiveness. But she gave Roger Noel a lot more information. Me grandmother, Dem, Elizabeth Southern, she's a witch. So is Anne Whittle and her daughter Anne Redfern. We are familiar, sir. Familiar, said Roger Noel. Uh, yes, sir, dogs. Tib, Ball, Fancy, Dandy. These dogs, sir, they give us special powers, but in return they need to suckle from our flesh and take our souls, sir. We also make clay pictures. Clay pictures, said Roger Noel, the local magistrate. Yes, sir, dolls made of clay, but with human hair and human teeth, which we have taken from the corpses at New Church Cemetery, sir. The dogs then tell us to fashion the clay pictures. They will select a victim, sir, and we crumble the clay picture over the fire 
and people die soon. Roger Noel, the local magistrate, was actually delighted. He wasn't scared. He was delighted because he had a confession. He gave orders to the sheriffs of the forest to arrest Elizabeth Southern, Anne Whittle, and Anne Redfern. The three of them are arrested and brought straight to Reed Hall, Burnley, where young Alison is also in detention. Now, as I mentioned before, there was no love between Elizabeth Southern and Anne Whittle. In fact, a deep, deep hatred. Both women, on being interviewed by Noel, tried to blame the other for witchcraft. But in doing so, the blame went around the table twice, came back twice, and the four of them unwittingly admitted to witchcraft. They are then sent to the city of Lancaster, where they are thrown into what we call the Well Tower, this very, very deep underground dungeon where not even a chink of light will get down to them. They are chained to the floor in absolutely appalling conditions. In the meantime, back in the forest of Pendle, at the little cottage called Malkin Tower, Elizabeth Devise is rather worried about her mother, Elizabeth Southern. She's very, very worried about her daughter, Alison Devise, and she organises what has gone down in history as the Good Friday Meeting, where all these other so-called witches converged in the forest of Pendle. It must have looked a bit like a scene from a Shakespeare play, as Alison's brother James slaughtered the sheep. They dined on fresh mutton. They got a large cooking vessel called the cauldron, lit a fire beneath the cauldron, and the black sepia liquid inside began to bubble and steam. In that black bubbling liquid went crushed, powdered human teeth, the odd clay pitcher, and we are told the odd human scalp. The whole idea, apparently the Good Friday meeting, was to get a potion together to blow the gates of Lancaster City Castle open and rescue their loved ones. However, nothing happened. What did happen is word reached the ears of Roger Noel, the local magistrate, that a meeting had taken place. He gave orders. I want every single person who would attend this Good Friday meeting to be arrested immediately. When word filtered into the forest of Pendle of impeding arrests, three people thought, hey, there's no way I'm going to hang around. Christopher Howgate, his wife Barbara, and Isabel Sigros, they left the area at great speed. In doing so, they saved their lives. The ones that were successfully arrested from being at the Good Friday meeting at Malkin Tower were Jeanette Preston of Gisborne, Catherine Hewitt and Alice Gray of the town of Cone, Margaret Pearson of the town of Paddian, Elizabeth Device, James Device, and Jeanette Device of Malkin Tower, John and Jane Balcock, a mother and son, and by far the biggest star of the show, the incredible Alice Nutter of Ruffley. They are all sent to Lancaster, with the exception of the two Jeanettes. Jeanette Preston comes from Gisborne, West Yorkshire. So therefore, she is sent to the city of York and paraded in front of the York City magistrates. There, her husband goes with her and begs for her release. Villagers go with her and beg for her release. However, the York City magistrates look very, very sheepish. Uh, we're sorry, the, the king has signed her death warrant. But my wife, she's not going to get a fair trial. I'm sorry, the king signed her death warrant. She was found guilty of the murder of her employer, Mr. Thomas Lister. She'd been nursing him. Uh, remember, life expectancy would be 35 if you were lucky. He had a terrible fever. She was trying to uh, treat him when he screamed out, She is killing me! She is killing me! And he passed away. She wrapped his body in a clean white sheet, ready for burial. And two days before the burial, she touched the sheeting and some fresh blood came from the sheet. This was classed as witchcraft. She was found guilty by the courts there, but the king had also signed her death warrant, and she became the very, very first of the Pendle witches to be executed in the city of York on the 27th of July, 1612, at a place called Whitmar, Watmar Gate, at the end of the shambles, this rather beautiful little street in the city of York. In the meantime, the other Jeanette, she was a little girl of nine, and she lived at Malkin Tower. Uh, with her brother James, her sister Alison, 
her mother Elizabeth and her grandmother Elizabeth Southern. When they'd been sent to Lancaster, she was sent to live with a local magistrate, Roger Noel, and for the first time in her life, she had three meals a day, a lovely warm bed to sleep in, and nice clothes to wear. She had no idea that she was going to play a very, very important role in the prosecution of what we now call the Pendle Witches. Roger Noel was delighted. He, he wrote to the king, Sir, I have witches waiting to be tried at Lancaster City Castle. The letter came back from the king in beautiful handwriting. Mr. Noel, sir, I'm delighted with your successful capture of these evil, wicked women. I shall send two circuit judges from the city of London, James Oltham, Edmund Bromley, and a young gentleman called Thomas Potts. And that's why we're here today, because Thomas Potts was the clerk to the courts. He could write very, very quickly. In 1613, a year later, he was going to write a book called The Wonderful Discovery of Witches in Lancashire, which would earn him a lot of money. It is the only window we have in this whole story. It is the only eyewitness account of this whole story. What we do know is at the trials, there was no defence counsel because no one dared take on the King of England. And we do know that Thomas Potts was very, very loyal to the king. In fact, a lot of the royalties from that book went to a gentleman called Thomas Cavett, who successfully stopped Guy Fawkes blowing up the House of Parliament. So you could say the trials were rather one-sided. The trials began on the 18th of August, 1612, city of Lancaster. Elizabeth Southern defied the court to the very, very end. She died mainly due to the harsh treatment that had been meted out to her. But her little granddaughter was brought into court, and that was little Jeanette Devise. She was picked up by Roger Noel and placed on top of a desk so the jury could see her. She told the courts how these dogs, Tib, Ball, Fancy, Dandy, had arrived at Malkin Tower, how the dogs had talked, and how the dogs had suckled particularly from the flesh of Elizabeth Southern, and Anne Whittle, and given them special powers. Of course, the courts believed that a little girl of that age could not be manipulated and believed every single word. Because Elizabeth Southern had died, the only witness against her was her granddaughter, who told the court that she was guilty of the murder of Rafe Asherton of the village of Downham, the child of Richard Baldwin from Burnley, and indeed the murder by witchcraft of uh, Henry Mitten, of the village of Ruffley. Because she was dead, she could not make a plea of guilty or not guilty. Next person up from the courts, beneath the dungeons, beneath the courts, was Elizabeth Device, Jeanette's mother. And when she saw her daughter standing on top of the table, she shouted, stop it, Jeanette, stop it. You don't know what you're saying, stop it. Have my mother moved from the court, sir. She's upsetting me, sir. And her mother was then taken downstairs. In her absence, she was found guilty of the murder of John and Josh Robinson and also aiding the murder of Henry Mitten of the village of Ruffley. Then came by far the biggest star of them all, really, in terms of the actual accusations, and that was Anne Whittle. She was in a terrible, terrible state of health. She was described by Thomas Potts in his book, The Wonderful Discovery, as being a skeleton in rags. The poor woman had been lying in her own waist, wearing the same clothes that she'd been arrested in way back in April of that year. She was in a terrible state of health. Her name was indeed Anne Whittle, but she was nicknamed Chattox because her teeth chattered away, probably because she was scared stiff. She was found guilty of the murder of John Device, Hugh and Anne Moore, and also Anne and Robert Nutter of Greenhead by having a dog called Fancy that came to her in the village of, of uh, Newchurch and gave her special powers. Of course, little Jeanette confirmed this at the same time, and she was found guilty of the murder of those five people. Next person into the court was none other than um, James Device, who was in, again, a terrible, terrible state of health. In fact, two warders had to support him because he kept collapsing on the floor. The jury wondered whether the lad had been tortured. They were told he hadn't, but he certainly looked to be very, very, very ill. 
um, again, his sister told uh, the courts that uh, he had a dog called Tip that gave him special powers. And strangely enough, uh, James admitted having this dog called Tip. He also admitted to the murder of Anne Townley of Townley Hall Burnley, John Duckworth and Hugh and Blaise Hargreaves by this dog giving him special powers and the dog telling him to fashion clay pictures and crumble them over the fire. And of course, his sister confirmed the story. Also, James told the court, if you go to Malkin Tower and start digging, you will find clay pictures. Apparently, these clay pictures were brought into court and used as evidence, but he had actually self-incriminated. Then came Elizabeth Device. She was in a, a, a terrible state of health. Uh, not a very pleasant sight to look at, apparently. One eye looked up, the other eye looked down, and uh, she, of course, was horrified that her own daughter was testifying against her, and she just gave up and admitted to witchcraft. Then came young Alison. Alison was convinced that she had lamed John Law, the Halifax peddler, and John Law was in court that day. And the senior judge, James Oltham, said, uh, could you please reverse the curse on Mr Law? I'm sorry, sir. Only my grandmother can do that, sir. And she is dead. In doing so, of course, she freely admitted to witchcraft. Then came Catherine Hewitt. Catherine Hewitt was found guilty of the murder by witchcraft of Anne Foles of the town of Cone. Apparently Anne Foles was a very wealthy lady. She had a beautiful white horse. She would gallop through the town of Cone and she would horsewhip people. And she picked on uh, Catherine Hewitt. Her nickname was Mold Heels. She was quite a tough woman by all accounts. And she didn't like being horsewhipped, so she dragged Catherine Hewitt off a horse, gave her a good hiding. And three months later, she died of an unknown ailment, but this was classed as witchcraft. She made a plea of not guilty, but was found guilty, again, through the words of the little girl, Jeanette Device, who told the court how she'd seen her also at the Good Friday meeting. This is where the story takes a very, very dark and sinister twist. In court that day were three people that many people believe were totally, totally innocent of the crimes against them. John and Jane Balcock, a mother and son, and a lady called Alice Nutter of Ruffley. To this very, very day, you can go to Ruffley, you'll come across this beautiful old hall called Ruffley Hall. That was the home of uh, Alice Nutter. Alice, by all accounts, was 60 years old. She had lost her husband, but she owned a lot of land on the side of Pendle Hill. On that land were farmers who paid her rents, and one of those farmers was called John and Jane Balcock, and they went to see her. Uh, Mistress Nutter, we are losing cattle. We are losing sheep. Someone has been pushing our fencing down. Um, someone's been stealing cattle and sheep. Don't worry. I shall go and see the local magistrate, Roger Noel, and we shall get this land dispute sorted. Now, way back in 1612, for some strange, strange reason, Women were not permitted to have a brain. And it was believed by some men that women didn't even have a brain. And when it came to male chauvinism, women suffered terribly in this country. Alice made her way to Reed Hall Burnley to plead her case for land disputes. But because she was a woman, Roger Noel wouldn't even see her. She was furious. She therefore made her way to the city of Lancaster to see the senior magistrates at Lancaster City Castle. As she walked into the court sessions there, she heard the words, It's a woman! A woman! Get her out! It's a woman! Get her out! She grabbed hold of furniture. She would not let go of her grip. And the judge said, Well, let her have her say. In one day, Alice Nutter won all the land disputes. She took her deeds with her. She took maps of the area. And the judges awarded those lands to her as being legally her land. But as she left the castle, she had no idea the senior judges were actually reprimanding Roger Noel for not doing his job properly. And Noel was furious. I need to get rid of this woman. I need to get rid of John and Jane Bullcock. They've embarrassed me. How can I do this? Ah, an idea came into his head. The trump card up his sleeve. The little girl, Jeanette Devise. For the second time that day, she was picked up and put on top of the desk. And there, in front of the jury, Roger Noel, the local magistrate, said, um, Jeanette, these people here, John and Jane Balcock, Alice Nutter, were they at your home on Good Friday, Malkin Tower, in the Forest of Pendle? They were, sir, 
a look of shock and horror came across John and Jane and Alice's face as they realised on the evidence of a little girl they were being found guilty of witchcraft. The judges were quite surprised because they realised that Alice was actually a noble woman. She could read, she could write, and they, they were quite surprised that a lady of that wealth would actually be with a group of peasants on Good Friday in a little stone cottage on the side of Pendle Hill. Therefore, they decided to have an identity parade and they brought up other prisoners from the jail beneath them and they mixed them all together. But young Jeanette pointed out John and Jane and Alice as being at the Good Friday meeting and told the court where they'd been sitting next to. Of course, the jury believed a little girl of that age could not be manipulated and they believed every word she said. The Pendlewitz then led out to the pillory at Lancaster, horrible place of execution, and they stood into what we call trestles. The trestles were kicked up underneath, underneath them. These poor people did not hang. They literally strangled to death. It has been said, never confirmed or denied, that as the rope was placed around Alice Nutter's neck, she very bravely turned and looked down at this huge crowd that were gathering to watch the execution. And she saw Roger Noel, the local magistrate, holding the hand of a little girl, Jeanette, with eyes. And she shouted from the gallows, I shall haunt you for the rest of your life. And then the stools were kicked up underneath them. The little girl, Jeanette Devise, watched her family die that day. She watched the landowners die that day. She watched the inhabitants of Cone die that day. And as soon as they stopped twitching, Roger Noel said, goodbye. But surely, sir, I'm going back to that lovely warm house of yours, sir. Goodbye. He had used her. We do know that she survived because three years later, she's re-arrested on a charge of witchcraft. A young boy called Edmund Robinson said he'd been walking through the forest of Pendle and seen her conduct acts of witchcraft. Of course, with her family reputation, this is taken very, very seriously. And she is arrested. The poor girl is sent to Lancaster. She is stripped naked. They look for marks on her body. And then she's sent to the City of London, where the practitioners look at her. And they send her back to Lancaster, down to London. And after two and a half years of travelling up and down the country, this young boy Robinson said, actually and made it all up. So you could see that witchcraft of the superstition surrounding it destroyed that young girl's life and of course her entire family. We do know that the two circuit judges at the Pendlewitch trials, uh, James Orth and Edmund Bromley, were knighted. Roger Noel, the local magistrate, was knighted and made the high sheriff of Lancashire with a huge increase in wages. And also Roger Noel, well, he had a marvellous life after that by becoming um, Lord Protector of that particular time. Uh, of course, Thomas Potts wrote his book, The Wonderful Discovery of Witches in Lancashire, which is the only window on this tragic, tragic story. And there, Michelle, we have the Pendle Witch story. It's truly one of those chilling accounts that you can listen to over and over and over again, and it still haunts you because it's, it's one of those moments in history that is really quite dark it's really quite tragic you can see how it must have really impacted on the local community for quite some time and it's still something that people can relate to and feel because of what it would have done for the families of that community all that time ago very much so michelle i mean for me personally the whole thing reeks of male chauvinism it really really does it's that total lack of defense really they really couldn't do anything to aid themselves you know they, they just were never going to be heard it was never going to be fair and and that's where you can really see just how their voices were lost really and as you mentioned in some cases just events really being twisted and turned against them for other means for other reasons for other purposes because of personal vendettas and and lots of other things happening and again that's the, the tragedy of the the, the, the story really it is a very, very tragic story, but a story that's never, ever, ever really disappeared from this part of the world. What we do find amazing, Michelle, and I know that listeners, if they want to, they can go into Google search and put the White Witch of Pendle. And it's a piece of snow that's slowly melting the side of Pendle Hill in the perfect shape of a witch on a broomstick. And I've often felt that um, Alice's spirit is still crying out for justice. What I can tell you is in 2012, um, myself, Pendleborough Council, Marketing Lancashire Visit England, we all got together. We thought we need to do something for Alice. And we contacted the, the lottery people and we got enough money 
to um, actually unveil a statue to her in the village of Ruffin. And that village, that um, statue has become very much a symbol of female rights. I'll put her in the same league as that magnificent woman, Emmeline Pankhurst, the fabulous Edith Cavall, and the brilliant Grace Darling. Because she lost her life, nothing to witchcraft, but the fact she was a woman who had a brain, a brain she was not allowed to use. And as I said, you know, one of the things that I just truly love about what you're doing is sharing these moments from the past with future generations, with the people today, so that, you know, children, young adults, people of any ages can can hear what happened all those years ago. And, you know, you tell you tell it with such heart. And I, I think that really makes these these accounts much more personable, much more relatable, much more something that you can understand. And, you know, that's powerful to to help share those tales with people. And you do it in in with a variety of different accounts, you know, different local people, different local locations. Yes. And, you know, one one other particularly poignant story that you always share is of of Wallace Hartley. Do you want to just tell people about that? Yeah, yes, I, I, I will, honestly, Michelle. It's yes. so moving. Yeah, it's a, a very, very touching story, Michelle, a very, very touching story. Um, again, um, we go to the town of, of Combe, and uh, way back in April of this year, I was very, very kindly invited to a statue in the town of Combe, um, dedicated to a very, very brave lad called Wallace Hartley. Age of five, Wallace could play a violin beautiful. Age of ten, he could play that violin as good as any adult. His mother and father got rather concerned about his love for music, and they said, there's no future in music. You should be concentrating on mathematics and English. But music won the day. At the age of 14, he joined the City of Leeds Stringed Orchestra as a professional musician. Age of 18, he joined three different ships, the Lusitania, the Mauritania, and the Lacana, as a member of the band. Just before his 33rd birthday, he was summoned to the City of London to meet a gentleman called Mr John Avery. He was the chairman of the White Star Line. Ah, oh, Mr Hartley, uh, come into the board, boardroom. Have a cigar. Now then, um, we'd like to offer you a position on our latest Queen of the Seas, the majestic, beautiful Titanic. You'll have a first-class cabin. You'll play to the most wealthiest people in America and Europe. And we will uh, commission you um, for £112 a year. For that period of time, that was an awful lot of money. He got back to his hometown of Cone in uh, Lancashire and the local newspaper took a photograph. Local man gets job on the Queen of the Seas. This coincided with his engagement to a young lady called Maria Robinson. And Maria said, Wallace, there's something wrong. I just feel there's something wrong. Oh, don't worry, the Titanic's insinkable and it's lucrative work. It's good news for both of us, really, Maria. She gave him a present, and that present was a beautiful violin with a brass plate on it. And on that brass plate it said, on the occasion of our engagement. They hugged each other at Cone Railway Station, and he set off waving to her as the train sped down the platform. He got to Southampton, and there she was, the Queen of the Seas, the RMS Titanic. He made his way to his first-class cabin, the paint was still fresh, the linen was beautifully ironed, and there's even hot and cold water in his cabin, which was quite unique for that period of time. The vessel then made its way uh, to Southern Ireland to pick up more passengers, and then made its way across the Atlantic Ocean. Now, Captain Smith uh, was determined to show the world what the Titanic could do, and ordered the stokers to get maximum steam. As we all know, on the 14th of April, 1912, at 11.40, two lookouts were up in the crow's nest, Able Seaman Fleet and Able Seaman Lee. And Lee saw in the distance, Oh my God, iceberg, dead ahead! He shouted this down the voice pipe. The first officer on the uh, bridge, Officer Murdoch, put the Titanic full astern, harder port, and they very, very nearly missed hitting the iceberg. But sadly, just beneath the port bow, 
beneath the waterline was a deep, deep gouge that was slowly filling with water. On board was a gentleman called Mr. Anthony Andrews. He was the designer of the Britannic, the Olympic, and the Titanic. And he went to see Captain Smith. He said, sir, we're in real trouble. We're sinking. What? This is the Titanic. No, sir, we are sinking. The pumps are working very, very hard, but they can't contain the water. How long have we got? About one and a half hours, sir. The radio room sent out distress signals, and one signal was caught by the Carpathia. She was four hours away. The captain board the Carpathia uh, told his stokers to get full steam and head straight towards the Titanic. The only problem being, it would take them four hours to get there. Captain Smith then decided, right, all the first class passengers will leave right away and all the first class ladies will leave all at once as well. Now, uh, Wallace was in bed at the time when his steward hammered on the door. Uh, Mr. Harris, uh, uh, Captain wants to see you. Uh, a ship, an iceberg or something. He got dressed very quickly, rushed up to the bridge and saw the captain. Ah, oh, Mr Hartley, you are a first class passenger. Let's have yourself second lifeboat's leaving now. Captain, I can't. You've got women and children on board. Mr Hartley, it's now or never. He turned and saw a young lady. She was called Wendy Slater. She came from New York. Long blonde hair, blue eyes. He said, look, you take my place. Wendy remembered climbing to that second lifeboat and being winched down the side of the stricken vessel into the cold, icy Atlantic Ocean. She then remembered the, the lifeboat being rowed away from the vessel and she watched it lurch up behind the silhouette of a silvery moon. And she heard those poor people in the water coming face to face with death. Amongst those screams, she heard the sound of a violin playing quite beautifully. It was a tune she knew from her youth called Nearer to My God than thee, and then there was silence. Three days later, a vessel was specially chartered called the McKay Bennett to search for bodies from New York. Uh, one of the um, watchers noticed um, with his spyglass a body floating on an Atlantic swell. As they brought the body on board the McKay Bennett, they noticed that a violin had been strapped to the body. They looked for the pockets. Wallace Hartley, Cone, Lancashire. His funeral in Cone attracted some 40,000 people. And there's a very, very famous saying, if you're a man and you survive the Titanic disaster, you are classed as a coward. The one thing Wallace Hartley will never be is a coward. The violin that was uh, struck to his body had that little breast plaque on it on the occasion of our engagement. It seems that Maria really did know there was something amiss. What I can tell you is the violin was sold recently at Sotheby's for $900,000. It seems that Titanic memorabilia really is very, very collectible. And there we have the Wallace Hartley story, Michelle. It's so poignant and just an incredible um, account of his his life his story his moment in that tragedy and um i know that his his gravesite his his memorial is just one of those ones that i think if anyone ever gets the chance to visit to look at i don't think they would stand there look at it and not be moved by his story of bravery and who he was as a person because it's such a touching tribute to him as a him as a man in his life a very, very brave lad. In fact, um, probably one of the most famous um, Lancastrians to this very, very day, actually, Michelle. But uh, yes, I've been to the grave and uh, told the story from the grave a few times. And uh, um, it is a touching story. And I think anybody who is interested in this area, interested in local history, ghost law, I think would absolutely love to come and find you. So we're going to make sure that we put all of your details on the podcast and the website so that people can come and enjoy listening to other, you know, accounts that you have to share. Because, you know, as, as I've said throughout this, you're one of my favourites. Um, I think you do it so well. And if anybody hasn't visited for a tour or come along to some of these events or seen what you're putting out on your different platforms, then they're missing out. So we'll make sure that we get all of your details to, to help signpost people to come along and 
listen to all of these other accounts and stories and and things that you share with people because you know they deserve to be told and those voices and the people and the history and the all the other things just don't get lost along the way so thank you so much for your time it's been incredible to talk with you this evening absolutely thoroughly enjoyable thank you very much michelle it's been a pleasure to talk to you as well and uh, i hope that people enjoy the podcast i really do and i'll say goodbye to everybody listening bye everyone <laughs>